Vintage Radio. Welcome to Poetry Roundup with me, Kemal Horton, and our guest today is Bravid, a.k.a. Dave Haywood. Hello, hello, Bravid, hello. Hi, Kemal. Thank you for having me on your show. Yes, and Bravid is going to chat to us about his new publication, which is I Know It's Here Somewhere Under the Radar, Mm -hmm. which is a, a biographical piece and is available on... It's on Amazon, and if you put Bravid at the top of uh, the Amazon search, you get it straight away. And there's a warning on the front cover uh, we should tell people about, uh, which is why I'm here in a way. The subtitle is A True Survivor's Account. Warning, this book contains poetry. It does indeed, and uh, those of you who go round the poetry circuits of Whittle and Liverpool will know Bravid very well from various places. Um... On those, on those circuits. Uh, it's uh, great to have it. And also, you've chosen all of today's music. I have indeed. I've tried to pick things which uh, perhaps uh, throw some light or sort of uh, illumination on, the, uh, on what I'm talking about in my, on my book and the, the various stages of, uh, of my book. Right. So what are we going to start with? We're going to start with Rag and Bone Man uh, with the track Skin. And uh, this, is a won- this is a wonderful track. I've always loved it. When I heard that sound, when the walls came down, I was thinking about you, about you. When my skin grows old, when my breath runs cold, I'll be thinking about you, about you. Seconds from my heart, I put it from the door, helpless I surrender. Shackled by your love Holding me like this Poison on your lips Only when it's over The silence hits so hard Cause it was almost love It was almost love It was almost love It was almost love When I Love, it was almost We bleed ourselves in vain How tragic is this game Turn around, I'm holding on to someone But the love's gone Carrying the load 
It was almost love It was almost love It was almost love When I So that was human with the uh, rack and bow man, and um, our guest today is Bravid, and you're here to talk about your new publication. So, why have you decided to write this book now? Well, uh, as you know, I retired uh, at the end of last year, uh, at the age of 60, and uh, I had more time to think. And then the lockdown happened, and I had even more time to think. So I thought, I know, I should write this down. And, and since I've been a performance poet for 10 years now, or round about that, I thought, and I had lots of poems, and I thought, well, hmm, maybe I should put something together which explained where those poems came from. And uh, I thought I'd like to reflect on my past, on the stages of my life and the key events and some insights and mistakes I've made and le lessons learned and to, in some way, which sounds a bit, you know, odd, but uh, I wanted to pass things on to others maybe. So if they read it, they could see that uh, if you go through difficult times, there's always something on the other side. There's always hope, no matter what life throws at yes. us. It's, it's more than that, though, isn't it, than this book? Because... Uh, I've described it to a few friends now, and I say, as, you, as it progresses, you start off with questions, but you end up with more questions towards the end, mm. and it reads more like a thriller towards the end uh, as yes. it unfolds, yes. um, which is all power, power to the writer, really. Yeah. Um, did, did you envisage that when you started out? Um, not really, although I'll talk later about there was a particular event which happened almost to the day today 
of um, uh, something I heard on the radio and it sort of sparked something which led to the final chapter, which we'll talk about later. So, so that happened after you started writing? Um, no, no, it was before I retired. So right. I, it, was, uh, it was another of the ca- sort of catalysts, really, and another reason to write the book. And I wasn't quite sure how I was going to do it, but what, as you'll notice, because I know you've read it, because you've given me some feedback on it, which I've been very, very grateful for. And what's, um, what I've done is changed the genre of the writing as I've gone through. So uh, it starts off as a novel, and it was going to be a novel all the way through. Uh, it then changes into uh, really a, a memoir uh, and various things that happened in my life. And uh, and then, as you say, at the end, it's sort of a thriller because it, le- <laughs> it asks questions which have yet to be answered. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think really let's uh, have a bit of the uh, a bit of the book so we can have a, a taster. Okay. Of, uh, your opening chapter, some, something from your opening yeah. chapter. Okay. I just want to say I, I wanted to explore memory and how our in- interpretation of it influences our perception of ourselves and how we see ourselves. And as a teacher, I was a teacher for 10 years, and I used to, to try and uh, tell pupils that although they had short horizons at the moment, they shouldn't base their future on it, that there's a big world out there. So uh, here we are. This is the very start of the book uh, from Chapter 1, Backtracking. You wake, bro, I spoke softly. There was a distinct cracking of joints as I unzipped the tent flap and tentatively poked my head out into the cool morning air, taking a drag from the cigarette I'd clumsily rolled on the sleeping mat. A frosty dew had settled on the field and no other souls seemed to have stirred, despite the increasingly strident wake-up calls of a farmyard cockerel. A dank mist swathed the valley, shrouding the mountain foothills, although the forecast was for fair weather once the sun had burned its way through. I relit the roll-up, which had expired due to the damp absorbed by my tobacco and papers overnight. A faint groan exuded from the other sleeping bag as its swaddled occupant shifted in half-sleep. Bro, it's 7.30. My voice lifted to a slightly more earnest pitch. I paused. No answer came, just the muffled guttural acknowledgement of a drowsy middle-aged man not wanting to be disturbed. My brother Brad and I rarely had chance to meet up like this these days with family and work commitments and the miles between us. It was spring 1998 and we had last attempted the hike up Snowden with our mum and dad around 30 years ago, Brad aged seven, me ten. Dad had spent his youth exploring and wrangling with the rugged North Welsh landscape, along with his two elder brothers, and was in his element. His demeanour would transform once out on the windswept hills, as though revealing his inner self, a younger version untroubled by life's daily strife. That hot summer day he had grudgingly had to admit defeat, and once the summit had been consumed by cloud, as we were scaling the steep penultimate scree, he had turned reluctantly back down the mountain, and revealing his frustration by snapping at the three of us, and clouting me round the ear for lamenting my fatigue. As was his wont, Dad had been over-ambitious, miscalculating our stamina, and our spindly legs were as worn out as our mother's. Our family couldn't afford or at least justify the expense of proper walking gear, and I can still recall the scuffed school shoes along with the matching brown quilted anoraks Brad and I were kitted out in, the only coats we owned back in those meagre times three decades earlier. In contrast, Brad's recollection of this event was that he had tripped, twisting his ankle, and that Dad had carried him on his shoulders all the way back down the mountain. I reflected that memories were sometimes unreliable, and possibly morphed by time and by the telling. I wondered 
if my personal recollection had been influenced by my own sense of grievance at having been left to my own devices while my tiny younger sibling was carried home. A few weeks ago, during one of our regular long phone calls, Brad and I had devised the idea of this weekend in Wales and located a campsite from where we could start and finish the circular trek up one side of the mountain and down the other. We had developed a close brotherly bond born out of our mutual experience and recollection, if not comprehension, of our formative years, the devastation of our father's death in a road accident in 1973, and our mother's mental disintegration, and our shared struggle to survive our circumstances and grow up in a climate of ever-present anxiety and fear for the future. Brad and I had spent the previous evening in the snug of the local pub, discussing work and family life, and as the night wore on, revisiting as usual our current disposition and feelings with respect to our common legacy. These matters frequently dominated our conversations. The nature of our parents' dysfunctional relationship, Dad's obsessive and controlling behaviour, the obscure, unexplained circumstances of his death, and our wretched mixture of sadness and yet relief at Mum's premature passing age just 60, three years earlier, in December 1995. I'd stopped off at a small village grocer's on the two-hour journey from Chester to pick up provisions and was in the process of frying up some bacon and eggs as Brad emerged, stumbling melodramatically and bleary-eyed out into the misty morning air. I'm not sure I'm up for this, he muttered. I wondered momentarily whether he meant physically or mentally, but shrugged it off as a rhetorical remark. I've done enough bacon to make us some butties for dinner, I said. Surely he means sandwiches for lunch, smirked Brad, parodying a posh southern accent as I knew he would. Choice of words and manner of speech were two of the idiosyncrasies which we would always bind us together. We donned our walking jackets and boots and set off across the campsite following a middle-aged couple who strode off in an assured manner along the public footpath dotted at regular intervals with yellow arrows, directing hikers towards the start of the mountain path. I was aware that the early stages of the path were gently inclined. The sparse woods broke into grazing fields, enclosed by ancient dry stone walls ruggedly constructed from pale grey limestone, which followed the contours of the land. Here and there were hefty five-bar gates, some of traditional timber, but the majority now of galvanised tubular steel. Moss and lichen had populated the northern facets of the walls and of occasional ash and silver birch trees bludgeoned into sculptural shapes by the prevailing winds and storms which for millennia had marched down the valley moulding the landscape with ruthless force huge boulders far too heavy to be shifted were strewn about covered in a rampant cloak of nature plants fungi small shrubs and tiny flowers clinging to their crevices a food source for ants and all manner of bugs and birds and another other wildlife as we walked alternating the lead Brad launched into one of his lectures on the architectural details of stone walling. As my younger sibling, he liked to show off his expertise, expounding on various variations in construction techniques from one region and county to another, and even between neighbouring valleys, sometimes due to tradition, or more often because of the microclimate or peculiar characteristics of the local rock strata. He explained how fissures had split the vertical rock faces by freeze-thaw action into boulders, rocks, stones, pebbles and grit, and how these had been moulded by rain, streams and wind in different ways. Every stone has a unique character resulting from the combination of its inherent structure and its experience of and reaction to its own environment, Brad pontificated. A bit like us, he smiled. After a few moments of reflection, I added, and after many years being battered by the elements and shifting of the heavy load bearing down on them, 
Even some of the sturdiest foundation stones supporting the wall can't take the strain anymore and start to crumble. What a wise, miserable pair of old bastards we are, laughed Rad. Thank you for that. And uh, one of the things that's interesting about that is how you move quite seamlessly from describing the camping trip to bits, a lot about your past. Mm. And in, in effect, what you've done is you've outlined what's to come in the whole book. Yes, yes. And, uh, Abs- absolutely, that was, that was the, the intent. And when it, when it started off as a novel, that was how I intended to continue. But um, uh, it's not easy to keep that sort of thing up uh, when you're th- talking in the third person. And uh, it becomes obvious that it's not... Yes. Uh, them, it's you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Anyway, we come to a, another piece of music now, and this is... This is Elbow, uh, one of my favourite bands, and it's a track called Open Arms. It's not often played, and it's from the album Build a Rocket Boys, and it's track number nine. You're alone to yourself and we don't suffer dreamers But neither should you walk the earth alone So with finger rolls and folding chairs And a volley of streamers We can be there for tweaks and repairs Should you come back home Oh 
the hell? That was elbow and uh, open arms. Mm. Marvellous. Yes. So we've already said this book contains poetry, and uh, did the poetry? Did you write the poetry for the book, or how did it come about? No, um, none of the poetry in the book uh, was written for the book. It was all pre-written, and strangely enough, uh, each chapter of the book uh, lent itself to ex- being expressed, or the emotions. I tried to express the emotions I felt at the time, which is a hard thing to do. But uh, it expresses my emotions that I felt at that that time in that part of my life Mm. and so they were a catalyst for the book but not the framework of the book if you see what I mean. I see yes in much the same way as you might use um, a verse or uh, at the top of each chapter you've as some writers sometimes do yeah uh, or a quote at the top of each chapter you've used a poem yes between each chapter and they don't necessarily reflect what's exactly in the in the uh, um, the chapter either before or after but they pick up the essence of my emotion at the time and as I say that's a very difficult thing to do to think how how did I feel before I know what I know now or don't know now yes how did I feel then and this is the first poem right uh, of that uh, of that uh, after the first chapter it's called The smallest cog in the wheel. It's hard to understand things, and the world appears surreal. Life spins beyond control when you're a small cog in the wheel. Your route is mapped out for you, but you can't see through the fog, blindly following directions when you are the smallest cog. Events occur around you, but you don't know what they mean. The truth is kept a secret from small cogs in the machine. My autocratic father would rebuke me like a dog. Expect no answers to your questions when you're just the smallest cog. My father's way of masking his own frailty, fear and shame was to throw his fist but then insist the small cog was to blame. It's hard to understand things and the world appears surreal. Life spins beyond control when you're a small cog in the wheel yes that very definitely captures that uh, looking back that you were doing in on your walk in Snowdonia where you're looking back at going up there with your father and yes how you all reacted to that indeed why did you pick that particular trip as the start of the book uh, that's a very good question um, it could have been various things but I guess it was the interaction between my brother and I and it was one of, the, as I said before, it's one of the f- rare occasions uh, when we'd reached sort of middle age, when we had, we, we were married and had had uh, kids, where and work and all those commitments, where we could drag ourselves away really and have a bit of time together. And we spoke for hours on the phone, but there was nothing like a face to face, which, mm-hmm. as we know now, is uh, one of the issues yes. that we face right at this minute. Yeah. Yes. So, so that's a jumping-off point for, for the, telling the whole story. Yeah. But um, in reality, then, where did life, your actual life, begin? Where were you born? And, and well, I was born uh, at uh, Clatterbridge Hospital in 1959, the end of 1959. And um, we lived in various uh, rented accommodation, um, uh, my mum and dad and me, in Bebbington. Uh, we were in Van- Vanderbilt uh, Avenue near the station in uh, Spittle. We were we lived in Seaview Road, I think, in Wallasey, 
and we lived in uh, oh Heathbank Road in Birkenhead. Uh, but I think there were a couple of other places as well. So I think we shifted around a lot. I'm not quite sure why, but anyway, I was only two. <laughs> yeah, some very various places too. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I was I was I was I was a, I was a very pretty boy, uh if I say so myself. And you see the pictures uh I was yes. uh, but not as pretty as my mum, who was a real beauty. So um there you go. Uh, <laughs> and we seemed to be a very happy family at that point. Yes, and then then you moved down to different parts of the country, didn't you, after that? Well, we moved over to uh, to North Yorkshire uh, all yes. of a sudden. And uh, in 1962, uh, again, I was six, two years old, and uh, things changed at right. that point. Right. We will hear more of that later, no doubt. Um, and you have an, another poem? I do. Enough is enough. Okay. This is, is written really from my mother's uh, perspective. My dad uh, became quite controlling uh, once we'd moved to York, North Yorkshire. Again, I, I don't know what, whether some of the memories I have are actually my memories. They could be things I've been talked about, uh, been, been uh, talked about with me, or they may be due to photographs I've seen. But they've become, if you like, the narrative. Uh, but I do remember the feelings, and this poem explains, unfortunately, the feelings that uh, I feel my mum might have had at that time. Enough is enough. If I plead enough, would he concede he once loved me? If I please him enough, could he care for me still? Never good enough. He still feels the need to oppress me. Must I yield to the pain and submit to his will? Curl up small enough, maybe he'll not even see me. Remain still enough, so he will not sense my dread. Stay silent enough and pray he won't hear me. No escape from these demons here inside my head. Yes, powerful stuff. And um, it must have been quite difficult uh, writing about some of these things, particularly the relationship with your father. And yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was, but then again, the the poetry had sort of broken the broken the spell really and i thought well either i tr i write down what i actually thought about it or i don't no one else is going to write this story so mm. it can only be me because unfortunately i'm the only one left i've got no one else to really refer this to it's my memory yes and uh i'd like to put it out there Yes, and, and as you say, you're the only one left from from that household. Yes. Are you, are you in contact with other members of the family at all? Or Very few uh, of my own family. There's only my uncle uh, who's yes. left, my mum's brother. And uh, so, uh, yeah, it was... Uh, I, no, I've, I've got very few, very mm. few uh, people to talk to about it. Um, basically, what, what had happened was... My dad, as I say, became very control, controlling and he was a severe disciplinarian. Uh, he treated mum very badly. Uh, my brother was born uh, only a year after we arrived in uh, Yorkshire, but my mum was very homesick and she got very depressed. And unfortunately in 64, she was sectioned under the Mental Health mm. Act for the first time in Yorkshire. And uh, unfortunately she had to have a forced um, uh, abortion, which uh, was something that uh, came up uh, through uh, the next, next uh, well, the remainder of our life, really. 
yeah it was hard yes. to hard to write um but you either accept the truth or you ignore it at your peril it seems to me uh and it made my uh, me analyze my own character and actions and it's which is something i've always done and those people who know me well some of whom are listening uh i sometimes do too much and i apologize for that but uh, i do tend to analyze things a lot well, there's a point where y you can un understand why you would analyse things, which is, which is almost another question, really, is mm. in doing this, I mean, clearly there's some self-analysis goes on when you write a biography. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Um, and in fact, you're very conscious, or I'm, I was, that I'm writing this in a way on behalf of other people, and that's a tremendous responsibility. Uh, and so I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to make it sort of bad for them, mm -hmm. um, but then it's my story, and I need yeah. I need to tell it. And uh, I, one of the things I really wanted to show was uh, how mental health, particularly back then, was treated as a shameful taboo, and that the treatments that were given were quite brutal. Uh, my mum had many uh, sessions of um, electroconvulsive uh, therapy, ECT, and some very very you know, sledgehammer drugs and the effects mm. of those lasted for the rest of her life and had an effect on her and her family. And as you say, she died prematurely. Yes. And you wonder what effect yeah. all that medication and stuff has had on, on the body. Absolutely. She, well, you know, she was plagued by tremors. She was, um, she'd lost most of her hair. Uh, she struggled with her weight. And uh, yes, the, uh, the condition really progressed really uh, despite the medication throughout her life and, and how do those family members that you've that can remember some of this mm. how have how have they reacted to the book or have they yet they yes um very well actually um yeah uh, most people have uh, have come back saying well well done for writing it and uh, my daughters have said well i didn't know that uh, I remember you t telling us something mm. about it, but I didn't know that that's what it was about. So uh, I know my, my youngest daughter hopefully is w listening from Berlin at the moment. Uh, Hello, Berlin. Tuning in, <laughs> tune in Berlin. And uh, she's come, come back to me. She's been, uh, she's been very supportive and giving me feedback. Mm. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, it's doing the job I hoped it would. Uh, and whether it's uh, wider circulation, I really don't know. And to be quite frank with you, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. It, I'm sure it will reach a wider circulation because <laughs> I say it. It's a cracking read. Once, and one of your techniques is that given a little bit away about what's coming next, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and that just at the end of each chapter you want to go on to the next one. Mm -hmm. So um, yes, I'm, uh, so. On that note, you've got mm. another piece of music. Yeah, well, I, uh, I, I, I thought we were going to play this one a little bit earlier, but it's Jim Crochet, uh, I Got a Name, uh, track 13. Right. Like the pine trees lining the winding road I've got a name, I've got a name like a singing bird in the croaking toad I've got a name I've got a name And I carry it with me like my daddy did But I'm living the dream That he kept here 
me down the highway Rolling me down the highway Moving ahead till life won't pass me by Like the north wind whistling down the sky I've got a song I've got a song Like the whirlpool will and the babies cry I've got a song I've got a song And I carry it with me and I sing it loud If it gets me nowhere Jim Crow saying, I got a name. And uh, and we have another poem, don't we? We do. We moved in, uh, ooh, 65, I think it was, back to, uh, to North Wales, actually. And um, my dad had moved us there, I think, for good reasons. Uh, he'd, he'd been brought up in the countryside. So uh, we had the, uh, the free roam of the hills and the trees and the... Uh, the rocks and all that sort of thing, and so uh, we made the best use of that. So in some ways there were sort of joyful times, and but uh, there was lots going on otherwise. So this is a uh, a poem about about, uh, about that. It's called Something About a Tree. There's something tranquil about a tree, which stirs in me a primal notion of powerful affinity, a symbiotic deep emotion. Seed shoots to sapling at its birth. Its roots entangled under earth draw sustenance from fertile ground. Wild wind-swept limbs aloft abound with leaves in undulating motion. There's something sage about aged trees. Their wistful wisdom in rippled rings encircling soliloquies. Poetic in their ponderings, demented druids and pagan monks would genuflect around the trunks of ancient yew and wizened oak 
whose spiritual souls evoke euphoria in their devotees. There's something bleak about a lifeless tree. Its twisted spindly fingers scour the squally sky disquietingly, enshrouding evil's baleful bower. From the page of gothic novels stalk cruel ghouls who prowl the woodland walk. As dusk draws nigh and darkness falls, the thicket stifles frightful calls which haunt the midnight hour. There's something strong about a sturdy tree, the perfect plank for sound construction of fishing boats and ships at sea, for peaceful ends or man's destruction. The mast and yardarm, the musket stock, the hangman's gibbet and guillotine block, woodwind and strings, orchestral tune. From an olive branch, a rough cross hewn, the crux of Christianity. There's something bold about a solitary tree. How its tallness seemed to call to the reckless in the youthful me, to reach its peak and brave the fall. In its highest boughs my brother and I would seek asylum in the sky, gnarled bark we'd shin up on a whim, ignoring risk to life and limb to rise above it all. Uh, so, this is the time now when you've moved about quite a lot and ended up in North Wales. Mm -hmm. um, as you and your brother, was this quite a lonely time then, having... It was in a way, um, basically, um, I became very, very shy. I was, uh, I, I'd, I'd sort of developed a stutter and I couldn't speak uh, a full sentence really. And um, I even found my own reflection repellent at, uh, at times. I couldn't look myself in the face, in the eye. And so I blame myself a lot of what was happening because no one would discuss what was going on. But my, my brother and I, and our dog, Piccolo, uh, we were a very close team. We were like the three musketeers, and we were off into the hills. You know, as soon as we got home, to get, in, you know, get out of the school uniform, off we'd yes. go. But school itself was a haven to me. Uh, I loved learning, and I was also encouraged to start singing, which is something I've done all my life, uh, on and off. Yeah. Actually, mostly off, but anyway, <laughs> recently I've sort of rediscovered it. Uh, but yeah, I drew, withdrew into myself really, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was it was quite a lonely time. Yeah. It, um, so, how old are you again around this time? This is. Uh, we would be. I would be about uh, ooh, sort of seven, eight. Yeah. That sort of that sort of age. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And th there are all the signs that. Nowadays, you'd hope people would pick up on that there's mm. something not right at home. Mm. Mm. Mind you, even if people picked up on it then, mm. what could they do about it? Well, uh, we were very fortunate that my, uh, my mum's uh, parents, my grandma and granddad, were around and uh, they could see yes. what was happening and they would step into the breach every time, sometimes much to my dad's chagrin. Uh, <laughs> they didn't he thought he should be there to, to control things but that wasn't really working so um, yeah um, I was very lucky yeah. that my grandparents who were in their late 60s at that point that they stepped in so uh, we were very lucky yes I think the um, the the world would grind to a halt but for grandparents ah well you see so many grandparents who end up at the main carers for people mm. 
Mm. And it was while you were living in North Wales, of course, that your father had this traffic accident. Yes, yes. uh, What happened was um, my father, uh, we had an old uh, Vauxhall Victor and uh, it had blown a gasket or something and he'd taken it to his brothers in uh, uh, in North, further into North Wales and uh, he'd taken my mum's moped, she rode a moped at that mm-hmm. point and uh, he took that in the back and then on his way back unfortunately uh, it was a very very windy, it was dark and it was uh, you know it was blowing a hooli and the uh, the rain the rain was blinding uh, and um, he, he got caught out basically and uh, he was hit by somebody coming down on the the, A, the A55 by the singing cattle right. people may know it but uh, yeah and yeah. basically he was he was killed uh, instantly mm. yeah so that must have uh, that must have been very difficult because it was a person that was just, although you'd had problems with the mm. relationship but he's still your father mm. indeed so y- indeed yeah. I had, I had very mixed, very mixed emotions. Um, I was only 13, just just come past my 13th birthday at that stage, and uh, I'd been plucking up courage to confront him, really, about the way he treated us. Um, and um, yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was it was very it was very tricky. Um, so uh, it's very hard to love and hate someone at the same time. Yes. And it happens a lot, really, doesn't it? Mm. Which I think is one of the uh, things that comes out of the, out of the book. Mm. Uh, one of the things that uh, one of the reasons why I think people will not necessarily enjoy reading it, but why people one of the things people will get out of it. I hope people identify is, things yeah. in, in their own lives. It sounds oh, it sounds so I don't know, I know. smug <laughs> to say it, but you know I've dealt with some of these things and I've had to think about it and. Um, you know, um, yeah, my mum really basically at that point was convinced that he's, my dad had escaped his responsibilities. As a result, she was very manic at that point, hard to control. Yeah. And uh, my brother, Brad, and I weren't allowed to go to the funeral. And that very act had long-term repercussions on my he- my mental health, my brother's yeah. mental health. And uh, it was all a taboo. We were, you know, we were pawns in the game. We weren't, you know, we weren't players really. Yes. We were, uh, we were people to be subjected to things rather than brought into, you know, discussions yeah. about stuff. So um, that hurt for a long time. But uh, I'm, you know, I should have forgotten it by now, shouldn't I? Really, <laughs> but I haven't. I don't think kids do. I mean, there's a point where you're writing about you as a child and how you're treated as a child, but that child becomes the adult. And if if kids were half as resilient as we're always being told they are, mm. the mental hospitals would be empty. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. And there you have. Well, there's my argument <laughs> anyway. Yes. Yeah. But it must have been a very not only a difficult time, but difficult to write about. Very much exploring yeah. those. It, it is. But once I sort of got into my flow, and I thought, well, I'm coming to this bit now. You know, here goes. Uh, I'll need to put pen to paper and tell it as it was and the way I see it so um, I find writing it down is quite cathartic uh, as you might expect and uh, but it's very hard to recall my feelings back then before I know what I know now (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and the sequence of events is quite obscure in parts it's hard to actually put it into sequence and new memories come in uh, as you're writing 
mm-hmm. and you think, where did that fit in? When did that happen? You know, that doesn't seem to fit the, the mould there. But um, I was engrossed in schoolwork back then, you know what I mean? I, I was just, I loved learning, you know, and, uh, but at the same time, I felt like it should become like an adult overnight, which of course mm. was completely beyond my capabilities. I didn't have the wherewithal to do that mm. and reproach myself for it, of course, that I wasn't able to, uh, to do well, that. You, well, you forget when you look back, you've got to remind yourself that mm. you were 13. Indeed. Yes. Yes, uh, and you wouldn't expect that. You wouldn't expect that of a thirteen-year-old. Yeah. No. So why did yeah. you? Why do you look back and expect it of yourself? Well, you I'm not saying I expect it now of myself. I'm saying but that at that point, then. I felt I should s- sort of step in somehow. But of course, I didn't have the means to be able to do that. No. And um, yeah, and I, I basically chopped off about twenty years of my my own childhood, effectively, and felt that I was the one who should take responsibility and to um you know to to be in charge sort of thing because there was nobody else though not really well my grandparents as i say yeah but um i felt very responsible you know for my mom and for yeah. my for my brother yeah we have another piece of music we do uh, this one uh, one of my favorite singers uh again sings wonderful uh, stuff wonderful lyrics all these songs have got have got great lyrics if you listen to them there are mm. c- certain lines in them which reflect what i'm Something to do with poets. Poets always pick songs for good lyrics. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Gar Garvey, you know, he's a he's a he's a poet. That man's a poet. He's a wonderful poet, anyway. But just happens to put it to music. Yeah, Josh Groban, February song.
Where's that old friend gone? Lost in a February song Tell him it won't be long Till he opens his eyes Opens his eyes Josh Groban 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 mm-hmm. In fact, yes <laughs> 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 yes, anyway, we were talking about grandparents and Andy Grandad that you were particularly fond of. And, yes. And you have a poem. I do. Uh, uh, yes, shall I go do that, read that Let's first? Let's do the poem, then you can tell us about it. Okay. Him. This is about my grandad. It's called Grandad's Triumph. He'd say, Bring me that thing with the comical spring. And the measuring tool I don't use as a rule. Once gripped in his vice, he'd fix any device. He'd endow all machines with feminine genes. Said he felt in his heart that the old girl would start if we packed her with grease. Her seized parts should release. I recall as a child how the neighbourhood smiled as they saw what we'd done when he got her to run. Manly hearts missed a beat as she chugged down our street. At the height of the blitz, he'd survived by his wits, never shutting up shop as he heard the bombs drop. He took life for a spin and would never give in. It was always his dream to rebuild that machine, but time has moved on and my mentor's long gone, his spirit of adventure demeaned by dementia. From the poor side of town, troubles never wore him down. And I swear I never heard him use a crude word. Still, my heart can't forget. I am forever in his debt. Yes. So he's quite a character, then. Uh, You could say that. (laughs) 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 Yes, he was sort of unique, really. And uh, he was, you know, he was just eternally optimistic. It was everything was a positive... And it was always a joke, and everything was... uh, you know, he made light. He made light of things. You know, he ran a cycle shop in uh, Oxton Road in Birkenhead. People know who he is, but I've changed his name in the book. But people will know. <laughs> people know. And um, he, uh, yes. he he retired at fifty six. Sorry, Camel, you were going to say. I was going to say my my bike still has his name on it. R- yeah, lots of people's not na- uh, people have a bike <laughs> with a, with his name on it. Okay, he retired, <laughs> but he t- he retired in fifty six. He was uh, had, he was told he had uh, terminal bowel cancer. Um, but um, yeah, he was told he had three months to live and lasted another 30 years. Thank goodness That's for good. me and my brother and my yes. mum. So uh, there you go. But yeah, he was a very creative technician. He was a practical man and he was a fantastic businessman. He used to absolutely love getting one up on his competitors. And uh, <laughs> he eventually got all the agencies for every bike manufacturer in the country for the Wirral. And so everyone had to come through him for their uh, mm-hmm. orders for bikes. And uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, and he took he took us on um, once he'd recovered from the cancer. He took us on in in, in his late sixties. Yeah. Here, my grandma, yeah, amazing. Yes, and of course, if he hadn't, the likelihood was because of the situation, my mum couldn't cope, and therefore, uh, my brother and I would have been taken into care. There's no, there was no other other no. thing that would have happened. So we were very very lucky, and that's why I feel so strongly uh, about him. 
and in lots of ways he was, he was a very positive role model after all that negativity that you were surrounded by mm. somebody to uh, to redeem the whole situation really i still haven't lived up to uh my expectations of myself uh <laughs> following my, uh being with my granddad uh, he was a hard act to follow. <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, <laughs> yes. I, the, I, I could share a few stories on that about my grandfather too. Mm. But uh, who people say I'm rapidly turning into, but I dispute that. <laughs> yes, I don't know who I've turned into. I think I've just turned into me, just a different version of it. Yes. And um, so uh, I, I, I don't blame anybody else, really. I am who I am, and uh, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, this is also the time when you um, head off for university. Yes, well. So where did you go and what for? Right, okay, well, I actually had ideas that I might become a journalist or something, but there were no journalists in my family, no one at school knew anything about it. We had one mm. dusty shelf with some old um, uh, sort of um, prospectuses from universities, and uh, all my other relatives seemed to be engineers, so I thought, well... I may as well go into that then. And so my A-levels were uh, maths, physics and uh, economics. And so I did okay in there, just about scraped through, got to, un got to uni and went to Leeds. And what a fantastic uh, experience I had there, fantastic. And it opened my eyes to all sorts of things because it was all about um, punk, punk rock. Uh, everyone was angry. Uh, everyone was in the in the street and protesting about uh, things, and uh, we said uh, oh, yeah. things as things can't stay like this. And I got a motorbike, and uh, much to my mum's annoyance, obviously for what had happened to my dad. But uh, I was independent, uh, or I thought I was. I wasn't really, but um, yeah, it was. Uh, I discovered beer as oh, much as anything. A, a yeah. wonderful thing to discover. It it was <laughs> yes, but uh, we won't go uh, into too much detail on the repercussions of that. But there you go. <laughs> that's uh, that's youth for you. Yes, and it sort of opened up a whole world that was otherwise it'd been quite narrow, hadn't it? Uh yes, yes it had and um so it was an eye opener to see all the different attitudes and the different people from different backgrounds and what their experience had been because it, until you know it you know you think your life is like everybody else's life and then all of a sudden you think well it's not How, hang on a minute you know why you know what's there's there's, there's a whole life out there you know i should be living it yeah. and on that note living life we are reaching the end of the show mm. so there's lots more lots more watch this space and we will have you back on the program again Sometimes thank you so inch. much, Kenneth. You have been listening to Poetry Roundup brought to you by Vintage Radio. This has been the first part of a program that was originally broadcast on the 14th of October, 2020. Today's guest poet has been Bravid, who's been talking about his new book, I Know It's Here Somewhere Under the Radar, available on Amazon. Just look up Bravid. B-R-A-V-I-D 
you will find him. Vintage Radio. Vintage Radio now present Poetry Roundup. This is the second part of a programme that was originally broadcast on the 14th of October 2020 with guest poet Bravid. Hello and welcome to Poetry Roundup with me, Kemal Horton, and our guest today is Bravid, a.k.a. Dave Hayward. Hello, hello, Hi. Bravid, hello. Hi, Kemal, and thank you for having me on your show. Yes, and Bravid is going to chat to us about his new publication, which is I Know It's Here Somewhere Under the Radar, mm-hmm. which is a, a biographical piece. And it's available on? It's on Amazon, and if you put Bravid at the top of uh, the Amazon search, you get it straight away. And there's a warning on the front cover uh, we should tell people about, uh, which is why I'm here in a way. The subtitle is A True Survivor's Account. Warning, this book contains poetry. It does indeed, and uh, those of you who go round the poetry circuits of Whittle and Liverpool will know Bravid very well from various places. Um... On those, on those circuits. Uh, it's uh, great to have it. And also, you've chosen all of today's music. I have indeed. I've tried to pick things which uh, perhaps uh, throw some light or sort of uh, illumination on, the, uh, on what I'm talking about in my, on my book, on the, on the various stages of, uh, of my book. Right. Who have we got, Dave? We've got a very apt one. Stranglers. Something better change. Sing to 
the Stranglers something better change. And things changed for you, really, didn't they, after university? Yep, yep, they certainly did. And uh, I got my first job at... Um, uh, in St Helens for an international company that built uh, mostly storage tanks for the oil industry but I was involved in a, for a, with a power station in Sudan and then we were shipping stuff to Libya and uh, the, the Scotland Fife Ethylene project and that sort of thing and uh, I very quickly moved from being a complete wazik basically who didn't know a thing uh, according to everyone there uh, to somebody who actually learned something useful uh, so basically all the knowledge that I'd built up in my head over three years at university was all completely useless according to them and uh, and I managed to sort of gradually understand the zeitgeist and sort of get into it. Basically all the characters I'd known from school, all the bullies, all the uh, uh, the extroverts, introverts, uh, clever ones, stupid ones, they were all there, same people uh, or same characters, different names. Yeah. So it was all there. Bigotry unfortunately was rife um, misogyny was even rifer, if that's a word, and it was appalling. When I look back, I think the way those uh, young secretaries were treated was absolutely appalling, and uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was a proper eye opener. Sometimes in good ways, but often in bad. I'm afraid. Mm, yes, and with any luck, some of that will have changed by now. Yes. Some of it. Some of it. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it's different. I guess it's different now, and I saw it change as well. Yeah. Uh, but I, I became the right-hand man for, the, for a project manager on the Libya project that we were doing there. Uh, but uh, I was just about to be set up for uh, doing project manager training at the age of 23 when the whole thing collapsed and I was made redundant for the first time. So mm. that wasn't very good. But I then got on a contract up at Sellafield which was very daunting at the time you know you go up there and you think oh my word and uh, but I got involved in, involved in the nuclear industry and uh, that uh, became the basis for the my career for the next well 10 years 20, 15 years ah, yes it's funny isn't it how you end up doing jobs that you didn't imagine you'd be doing I certainly I certainly didn't but uh, <laughs> again I learned very very quickly uh, yes. and uh, yeah I still uh, it, it sort of led to a very fruitful area of my career mm -hmm. and the one where I made pr most progress, really. And so uh, I'm always grateful for that. But I was on contract, so I was treated like a contractor. And right. uh, contractors weren't treated particularly well, you know. But you did have some money in your pocket. And, uh, well, for me, I was, I was minted. My goodness. Yeah. And uh, I saved lots of money because uh, I didn't do like lots of others did and go, you know, go, from, go for a sundowner and stay till after one o'clock uh, yeah. at the digs. So uh, I, um, uh, I saved my money and I, I read a lot. I, uh, I was very, you know, yeah. Anyway, so I, I used to do it like a circuit round uh, the, bot the bottom half of Scafell. Uh, uh, Scafell uh, mm. or uh, Scaffold Pike. Scaffold ah. yeah, uh, and and uh, round there, like I did a circuit of about f ooh, five miles, something like that, and uh, I became quite fit, which is a very unusual mm. thing for me. But there you go, <laughs> there you go. So I made the most of it yeah. and saved a lot of money and was able to buy myself my first boy racer. Right, that is a boy racing car. That is uh, not the actual. Yes. Yes. Yeah, my Just boy racer car. <laughs> yes. Yes, that's correct. Right, and, yes. you, and you've got another excerpt from the book to read. I do, and it's about that, uh, that time. This is an excerpt from Chapter 5 of the book, uh, which is called Delayed Reactions. 
After about ten months in my new job, I'd saved enough to buy myself a brand new boy racer, a black Ford Fiesta XR2 with spotlights and red go-faster stripes. It was every young man's dream at the time. I was going places. Little did I know that for me, this would soon mean witness. My delight with my shiny new sports car lasted less than two weeks. I shared a lift to and from West Cumbria every weekend with a colleague named Frank, a local Tory party activist in his 60s from the genteel suburbs of Ormskirk. We had some tremendous political arguments but remained friends via t telephone calls and Christmas cards for many years after. I had a habit of befriending older male colleagues and latched on to similar mentors throughout my early working life, probably, I think, in a vain attempt to replace the father figure I had lost and in so many ways had never had. 1984 was an eventful year for me in other ways. Three significant episodes in hindsight indicated my assessment of and regard for my own personal risk and safety was flawed. And I had, like many young single males in their 20s, a tendency to be a tad reckless. On a singles package holiday to Tenerife, I had booked together with an old school pal. Uh, on the afternoon of our arrival, I was taking in some rays stretched out on a sunbed when the notion occurred to me to take a dip in the hotel's outdoor swimming pool in order to cool myself down. However, instead of walking down the steps, I decided to attempt a spectacular backward flip into the inviting water. Regrettably, due, I would always maintain later to unclear signage. I had somersaulted into only three feet of water, landing on my head and crushing three vertebrae in my neck. A painful flight home and several weeks in a neck brace would, one would have thought, have been a warning to me to take more care. However, some lessons are hard learned. And a few months later, as I was breaking up a slab of concrete with a sledgehammer, the tool's 14-pound head, which I knew was already loose, had flown off and landed on the back of my head, chipping my skull. The wound was stitched up, but a couple of days later, my neck muscles gave way again, requiring a further month in a brace. I needed time off work at a busy period, which didn't enamour me to my project manager at the time, although I was able to make full use of the well-equipped on-site medical facilities at Sellafield. Then... One balmy evening, towards the end of my 12-month contract, at a detour from our usual route, my colleague Frank and I called in for a swift pint at a traditional pub in the village of Ravenglass, overlooking the Marshland Bird Sanctuary. As the sun was setting, we drove onto our digs in my shiny new XR2, when I realised I'd left my favourite cigarette lighter behind. I dropped Frank off, set back to the pub, see if someone had handed in my beloved lighter. It was pitch black by now, as dark as only remote country places can be. As I weaved my way down the narrow, hedge-lined, twisting lanes, I rounded a corner to be confronted what momentarily appeared to be a swarm of green fireflies. Instinctively, slamming on my brakes, I realised in a flash that I was actually face to face with a herd of woolly, green-eyed cattle. However, my reactions were not fast enough, and I hit the first young bullock broadsides causing the poor beast to lift off the ground, hitting my windscreen and sliding down the bonnet, leaving a large dent and a slimy stain, and unfortunately crippling the animal. The other cattle ran off, leaving the unfortunate beast stood in the middle of the road, shocked and trembling on its three remaining functional legs. The bullock wasn't the only one in shock, but I realised I would have to take immediate action to get the animal removed from the highway. With the car's spotlights hanging loosely from their wires forlornly out of their sockets, I continued on to the pub, quickly retrieved my lighter and asked how I could contact the nearest police station. The landlord f kindly phoned the local constable who met me at the scene of the accident where the bullock still stood tripodic on the road. I think I know whose it is, said the officer, 
They're a special breed owned by the tenant farmer down the lane. I'll radio through, get someone to come and collect it. He took a statement and revealed indiscreetly that the local police were constantly having to round up stray cattle, escaping from this particular farmer's fields due to the poor state of his boundary fences. I discreetly wrote a note and recorded the constable's name and number. I limped sadly back to my dig, still in shock, upset about the animal, but feeling even more despondent at that time about the poor pranged car. It took two years of letters and court action but eventually I provided sufficient evidence that the farm had been negligent and my insurance claim was paid in full. Of course I had no way of knowing at that time that this was only the beginning of the vehicle's blighted and short-lived journey. (laughs) Dot dot dot. Yes, yes, uh, yes, it gets worse doesn't it? (laughs) Oh yes. So your, your career's beginning to take off then in, in the 70s and 80s and um, you've got a succession of jobs which provide quite a few anecdotes in the, in the book which yep. are yep. Yep. Quite, quite interesting and, uh, and amusing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you come to, uh, in fact you've got another poem there haven't you, Beware I Demons. I do. And this harks back to what I was saying before about uh, young men who have too much money and um, I decided to buy a house uh, but in the meantime uh, I had lots of money and um, I went out drinking quite a lot and um, this was uh, sometimes the effect of uh, the drink had on me and it's called (laughs) Beware Demons Early one Sunday morning waiting for day to arrive my mind spoke without warning didn't want to be alive Hung over from a bender, I'd lost track of the score. All hope returned to sender, I forgot what I was for. I tried the usual remedies to banish all regret. I wallowed in old memories, but still my mind was set. I gave myself a talking to, from self-pity tried to snap. I decided to start walking, but my torment dragged me back. My past began to haunt me, dread dripped from every wall. Life's trial set out to taunt me, I could see no good at all. My whole life flashed before me as I sought a safe way out. My mind chose to ignore me, trying to mess my head about. My brain had turned against me, but my soul fought on to win. Next time the demon tempts me, better choose a quiet night in. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But of course, all of this, on the surface, things seem quite jolly and uh, happy and... Mm. But there are real demons as well, aren't there, during this time? You, your family's yeah. shrinking. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, in parallel with my experience, uh, my brother was really suffering. And uh, he'd uh, come back from uni, having gone to do mechanical engineering as I had. And uh, basically, I think he thought, you know, if my br- if if daft brother can do it, then so can I. But it wasn't quite that simple. He got in with the wrong crowd. And by the time he'd realised, it was too late to catch up. And he failed. And he came home. And uh, that wasn't good. He'd already decided he wanted to go into architecture. Uh, but it was too late to, to, re- to join the course. So he had a year at home. Mm-hmm. And that was a terrible year. My mum was very, very ill. And my grandparents were start on the start to on the way down with n- dementia. I was still at home, but I was you know I was at work. You know to I mean a lot of the time. But uh, yes, uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't good. Uh, and my my grandparents eventually died. My mum remarried actually. Uh, lovely chap, really really nice man. And 
but she was still suffering, really suffering uh, with mental health, and uh, it wasn't uh, it wasn't a good wasn't a good situation really. Uh, Brad <laughs> became very 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 ill, and had to be. Uh, he went into hospital, and uh, he made a few attempts on his own life, unfortunately. So, um, and my mum, unfortunately, at that point, I know now because I've seen her medical records. She was she was diagnosed with uh, paranoid uh, schizophrenia. So, uh, no, it wasn't uh, it it wasn't uh, wasn't an easy it wasn't an easy time. So there was there was the it was the sort of um, juxtaposition of me making good progress in my career and yet the rest of mm. my life was sort of falling apart really but uh, yeah did that affect your ability to form relationships with people do you think oh god yeah yeah absolutely mm. but I had very few friends at that time I, I didn't feel like really had much to say to pe- old friends and things like that so I sort of withdrew really but then when I bought my house I uh, I sort of um uh, I, I sort of got stuck into that, and it was practical things like it often had been, you know, yeah. and got stuck into. Uh, it's your in, comfort into zone, isn't it? Practical things. Definitely, definitely, yeah, yeah. They're the greatest, great mm. distraction, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah they are. Yes, hmm. it's uh, interesting. And uh, you have another poem. Yes, it's it's a, it's uh, uh, yes, it's the, uh, sorry about the title, uh, but <laughs> we don't uh, have to apologise to me. It's more, um <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the title is uh, a, a terrible take on uh, another poet who wrote something which rhymed like this. Yeah, I, I like rhyme and rhythm. Uh, that's my poetry. I, I find it hard to escape from, but actually helps me to construct things so and to bring my thoughts together. So I, I don't apologise really. Um, no, I don't. Anyway, there you go. This is called "I Pondered Only as Aloud." I often wonder as I wonder what it is that makes us so, when we procrastinate and ponder how do we choose which way to go. Sometimes in a mid-thought I find a notion that I've had before, a deja vu or brief reminder from an ill-frequented store. The mind has many nooks and crannies into which it seldom delves, until at his denouement man is face to face with his real selves. It seems to me that none of us can swear to know our true intention till the odds are stacked against us, only then we'll find redemption. If my buddy was in danger, threatened by some violent lout, would I pacify that stranger, or would I try to take him out? If I saw a vehicle driving fast towards a toddler's pram, would I, without blinking, dive in, and does that tell me who I am? A soldier who in combat's madness shoots on instinct through the brain, must allow himself no sadness, such things drive a man insane. A long while after times of crisis, we'll ruminate on what we've done. On reflection, my advice is, love that person you've become. Yes. It's it's an interesting thought, is that so often we um, have to make decisions or we or we think we would do something differently mm. but in actual fact we don't know to are put to the test do we no and of course looking back the, the the restraints that we were under at that point and the knowledge we had and the people we knew really uh it's very very easy to say we should have done something different but um re- you you can you can really do your head in by thinking like that because the fact is you are where you are and you did what you did, so give yourself a break. Yes. 
<laughs> and speaking of breaks, we have another piece of music. Yeah, okay. One of my favourites and very apt at the moment. Uh, 40th anniversary of uh, the man's passing. What a great man as well. John Lennon, working class hero. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small. By giving you no time instead of it all. Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. They hurt you at home and they hit you at school. They hate you if you're clever and they despise a fool. Till you're so fucking crazy you can't follow their rules. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. When they've tortured and scared you for twenty odd years Then they expect you to pick a career When you can't really function you're so full of fear A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be Keep you doped with religion and sex and TV And you think you're so clever and classless and free But you're still fucking peasants as far as I can see Working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be There's room at the top they are telling you still But first you must learn how to smile as you kill You want to be like the folks on the hill A working class hero is something to be A working class hero is something to be If you want to be a hero, well just follow me If you want to be a hero, well, just follow me. Yeah. 
Yes, John Lennon, of course, with Working Class Hero. And, of course, this... Uh, we'll just talk about you working for uh, BNFL, mm. um, which is a predominantly white, middle-class occupation, people from top universities. And then there was you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you yeah. feel like a fish out of water? Um, sort of, yes. It was a challenge. Uh, what had happened was because of all the experience had built up and I'd still had another re- um, redundancy in the meantime and lost a contract and various things I was involved in the study for the um, oh long uh, forgotten European demonstration reprocessing plant at Dunray which was uh, a huge uh, thing at the time and uh, so I sort of cut my teeth on that various other things as well and ended up uh, being headhunted by BNFL uh, at Risley and uh, that's where things really sort of took off really people recognised that I had a bit of a talent for spotting solutions to things and I would cut I, I wouldn't mess about I would just sort of say well why don't we why don't we look at doing that and then produce the evidence to show and got some draftsmen and mm-hmm. got you know whatever other engineers and various others and people saw that I could do that and so uh, I was very very fortunate with some of the line managers I had I was promoted twice within a year, which was unheard of, and I didn't have to go through the board, which uh, was a, a system where they had 10 people uh, examining you, and they were more interested in who your father was and your, um, uh, what your educational background, which school you'd, and university you'd been to. So anyway, that was uh, being uh, wiped out, and mm-hmm. I was one of the first to, to benefit from uh, being looked at from my merit, I would, yes. ho- I would like to think. And uh, so I did. Um, I did well. Did well, and um, I, I realised that people were interested in what I had to say, which is a, a bit of a, a novelty for me. And uh, I used to give presentations to senior board directors. In the end, went on a training yes. course. Suddenly thought, hang on, and but you see, I'm very good at doing things when I've got something written down, Kemmel, rather than thinking off the ho- on the hoof. Mm. I'm far better uh, having prepared it looked at it you know powerpoint was brand new believe it or not in yes. back in those days about 1988 yeah. something like 1787 and so uh, it was a brand new thing and uh, i used i used it it's the bane of everyone's life now of course but uh, that back then it was quite a thing so i used it as a tool and i became very proficient at it yes it's ideal for if you're um, a little bit nervous about things you can rely yeah. on that and of course it impresses people go, wow look at it this does and i'd have my pictures and my graphs that have yes. been pre-prepared and uh, the little sort of prompts for what i was going to talk about yeah. so i didn't overdo it i wasn't one of these who put uh, you know 20 points on the on yeah. the graph you know i was good at keeping me three points on a on a slide and then i would talk to it rather than talking you know, just you know, reading what was on the screen. So, I became pretty good at that, if I say so myself. Well, I must have done because um, you know people seem to like what we did, and we 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 actually produced some amazing things. Which unusually, about seven of them were changed on Sellafield site, and uh, intermediate level intermediate level waste was my speciality, and looking at how they'd be stored in the future and uh, how they'd be handled, and we reduced the cost, so we saved about two hundred million for British taxpayers. Yeah. So uh, we did pretty well between us, uh, and there was a lot of us, you know what I mean. Yes. But um, yeah, I was able to get people together. I could talk to the workers as well as to the senior management, whereas the other people around me, some of them who'd come from the top universities, really, they sort of had a career to run, but they seemed yeah. to forget it was about solving engineering problems. 
<laughs> part way through. You know what I mean? So they go yes. to meetings and they were always yabbering with um, you know senior bosses and you know joining sailing clubs and things like that. Uh, that was not that was not me at all. So mm. I just got on with it and uh, seemed to do very well out of it for a while, which is good. Oh, good. And of course, at this time, at some point, you meet your wife. Uh, yes, and, and you have a poem, and you can so if you read the poem, and then you can tell us a bit about how you met her. Okay, right. Okay, this is one one I do in a different style. It's right. by somebody called. Uh, it's not by them. It is uh, in the style of Doctor John Cooper Clark, who I saw uh, when I was at Leeds University and a couple of times since. This is called Terms of Endearment, and it's it's Terms of Endearment because if you if you look at it, each line has an endearment that we use uh, in our normal lives, and I've tried to bring it into the poem. So that's why it's called Terms of Endearment. Okay, here we go, John Cooper Clark. Yes, esque. You're my carpet slippers, darling. You're my comfy shoes. Tell me what you did today, love. What's the latest news? You're my umbrella, darling. When it starts to pour, you are my ray of sunshine, love. My parasol d'amour. You're my toasted crumpet, dear, my consummate confection. You've seen my every blemish, babe, I'm no punnet of perfection. Why do you stick with me, my dear, with all my pits and falls? You put me back together, babe, you're the mortar in my walls. You're my mashed potato, kid, you're my tomato sauce. The queen of my cuisine, my sweet, you are my favourite course. What was it that you did, kid, to deserve the likes of me? I'm more trouble than... And I'm worth my sweet in brutal honesty. You're top of my top twenty, baby. You're my number one. You set my dervish whirling girl at the disco dancerthon. I may be no Esther, baby, but you're my dancing queen. You're poetry in motion, girl. You star in every scene. You're my Eiffel Tower, sugar. You're my Taj Mahal. Through trials and tribulations, pet, you've been my perfect pal. You tolerated turmoil, sugar, when I was all at sea. Then sailed me back to shelter, pet. You steered me back to me. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so how did you come to meet your wife? Well, by complete accident, actually, Camel. Um, yes, I was not used to talking with uh, with the opposite sex. They were like quite a mystery to me. Whether it was because of, um, you know, my, my mum and dad's relationship or something, I don't know. I don't know what it was. Anyway, but well, I just... That and engineering and all the other yeah, things. Yeah, it, it was an all-male thing, yes. really, you know what I mean? So I've got very little opportunity, really, and uh, it never sort of occurred to me. I'd, I'd actually been, the reference to Taj Mahal there, I'd been to on a trip to India, and uh, f uh, 14 of the 16 people on the trip were women from all around the, right. wor all around the world, yeah. And I suddenly I thought, hang on a minute, I'm missing out. I'm missing out here. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so <laughs> I need to uh, I need to think again. And uh, so uh, basically, the the aspect I saw was was basically these are just people like me. They just happen to be female. Yes, it's, it's not, you know what I mean. It was <laughs> you know because we were we were in very low low priced accommodation and things like that. Mm -hmm. We mucked in. And it was, oh, it was marvellous. It was marvellous. And the Taj Mahal, my goodness. It's not a building, it's, a, it's an emotion. 
that building. Mm. It's just amazing. Anyway, whatever. There you go. Yes. So um, w- I went on a holiday with a friend of mine uh, who'd been on a um, with a, a company called um, HF Holidays. That's Holiday Fellowship. It was uh, an ex-Christian sort of formerly Christian organisation, and there were guided walks in the countryside. I went up to Keswick, and um, we, um, you know, we we just went on and did those. What I didn't know that HF also has another meaning and it stands for husband finders now i didn't know that <laughs> yeah. I, I was i was unaware i was naive anyway but anyway so uh long long and short of it we were we were engaged three months to the day and then we married 12 months to the day that we met uh and that was in 19 oh dear i better get this right 1993 <laughs> yeah right. so 27 years yeah yeah so um so there you go so uh yes remarkable remarkable and uh yeah of all the stages of my life that's you know that's the biggest that's the biggest change yeah because of course i became a father uh as well and uh very soon after so in 1995 yes, yes. and all, all the things that brings with it yeah. and uh but also around this time, mm. I'm not too sure what time we're at now, we're in about 1990-something, aren't 93-ish. we? 93-ish. 93-ish. Yes. And, th- of course, that's the time that your mother dies. She did. Quite. Was it quite sudden? It was uh, It was in the end, yes, but the, uh, the, si- the signs were there. Uh, she'd been deteriorating for many years, yeah. and she was still suffering terribly from mental health. And all the side effects of all those drugs for all those years. And uh, she hadn't been able to make a, a meal mm. by herself for the last 20 years. It was that. Mm. It was it was that. And given that she yeah. was 60 when she died, yes. so for yeah. since she was yeah, yeah. 40, she couldn't... Yeah, and, and mm. despite, you know, the care from uh, her, her husband her new, her, uh, after she remarried, um, it was, uh, you know what I mean, in the end, it, yeah. it, it sort of got her really... And uh, she took her, our daughter out. Uh, she, she, fortunately, my daughter was was born uh, the same earlier the same year, and uh, she was able to take her out. And she loved her dearly, yeah. which was fantastic. But um, yeah, in the December, in the in the uh, uh, in the winter, uh, she took her for a walk in in, a, in in the pram, and she overdid it. Really, they thought she got lumbago, and basically she went to the hospital, and within two days she was she she'd passed away. Yes. And uh, I was there. When uh, and held her hand well, uh, when that happened, but she was only sixty years old, so uh, yeah, yeah, it was uh, yeah difficult, difficult time. Uh, and and you have another poem, the dawning. Yes, which is about that that point. And whenever any of us lose, um, particularly lose a parent, or after we've lost both both our parents, we sort of, and irrespective of how we you know our relationship was them or whatever, it's like losing an anchor in Mm. your life and that's how I felt. This is called The Dawning. No news at all occurred today. No clarion call. No clanging bell. No one had anything to say. No feathers flew. No rainfall fell. No moon shone through the starless night. I saw no dawn or blood-red sky. Cruel consequence concealed from sight. Nobody cared to question why. No flowers bloomed, the tide stood still, long hours fusing into one, a void my mind refused to fill, till silence whispered, she is gone. No scandals turned the tabloids red, 
The TV screen stared inky black as truth took root inside my head. I knew I'd never bring her back. Yes, it's a beautiful poem, beautiful poem. We're going to have some music now. Mark Cohen, true companion. My, my wife will cringe if she's listening now. And uh, I'll say, listen to the lyrics, listen to the lyrics.
I'll be out there waiting for my true companion Just for my true companion True companion True companion There we go, Mark Cohen. Mm. Very good. So, um, all this stuff's happening, mm. and so you become a husband and a father. Mm-hmm. So, did that make you further question your upbringing? Yes. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. And and uh, you know, it's like making up for lost time, really. You know, because I was what thirty. Uh, uh, yes, because you were quite old. Mid- as, um, yeah, thirty. Four, 33 yeah my wife was a year older you know she, yes. she'll, she'll get me for saying that <laughs> anyway uh, she wasn't quite a year old anyway but um yeah so i, I just felt so lucky you know that uh, here's my my opportunity and, and uh, uh i'd like to say she was wait- worth waiting for there you go, there you go. Absolutely. Right. right so uh, yeah we gave sort of lots of love and cuddles to our daughters so we had a second daughter and and I was very adamant I didn't want to make the same mistakes that my dad had made. Mm. Uh, we'll come to it later. There may have been reasons behind some of that. But um, I've always resisted my own urge to control people. I could be, you know, a controlling person. But I'm always aware that, uh, you know, I may not be... Yes. I shouldn't put myself in that position, really. And possibly why I've never taken on sort of senior management roles. So even though I, I was trained to be a project manager for uh, BNFL, I chose to go down a, a different route, mm-hmm. uh, which ended up in another redundancy, as it turned out, <laughs> just before my second our second uh, daughter was born. But there you go, nothing ventured, nothing yeah. gained. But uh, yeah, that was quite interesting. I think it's that self awareness that you developed yeah. that makes you want to not do what mm. your parents did. Mm. Uh, a lot of people that don't develop that self-awareness end up replicating what their parents did when they've had a... Yeah, a well, it goes both. It goes either way. Yes. It's a bit like smoking, isn't it? You know, you know, if your parents smoke, they say, oh, you'll be a smoker. Mm. On the other hand, you might say, there's no way I'm smoking. You know, mm. who knows how it's going to go? It goes It goes both ways. You know, yes. my parents were very heavy smoker. I was, I was brought up, uh, pulled up by a teacher at school, I remember. Uh, because my blazer was so full of cigarette smoke, they accused me that I'd been smoking, and I, I hadn't. Yeah. You know, injust- I hate injustice. That's a yeah. terrible injustice, isn't it? You know, imagine being, mm. being like that, you know. I thought, you know, but you can't say anything as a kid, can you? You know, no. you've just got to take the punishments and just, pff, what can you do? Yeah, anyway, there you go. I don't like that sort of thing, come on. No, no. <laughs> anyway, moving on. As, uh, yes. You tell in the book of a rather strange meeting with your dad's brother. Yes. Uh, your uncle, in fact. Yeah, yeah. But he, he's much more your dad's brother than your uncle, if you see what I mean. Yeah, in a, in a, in a way, yeah. They're, they're, he, he grew up with his two brothers and his two sisters in North Wales uh, when he was, a, he was a lad. And they were the three musketeers in their turn, you mm. know, the, uh, before us. And uh, he... Uh, yeah, it's, it, it, my, my father had been a radio operator in the in the war uh, uh, after the war in his uh, national service. In fact, he did the third year. He didn't have to, but he did three years as a radio operator. Uh, but he came out, 
and became a chemical engineer, chartered chemical engineer. But his two brothers stayed in, and one of them was a fighter pilot. And my uncle Paul, who's mentioned in the book, uh, he became very high up in, I think, the Royal Engineers. Although, now I look at it, I wonder whether he left the army and he did sort of private contracting-type work. Mm. I don't know that, but there you go, who knows. But yeah, it was a very strange meeting. And uh, I, I, t- I rolled up completely un- unannounced, yeah, uh, knocked on the door, and uh, he was very taken aback. But he, he showed me into his study, which had a big, big, uh, big um, green uh, leather-clad desk, and yeah. a massive picture of him in full uniform with his 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 latest wife, because <laughs> he'd had three <laughs> wives, and his and his and his latest son, and uh, staring down at me. You know what I mean? Uh, but it was very opulent. You know, it was uh, all all sort of oak lined and stuff. And he um, he showed virtually no interest at all. In, in me or my family or anything yeah. like that. He, the sooner he could get rid of me, the better, it seemed. And um, he had no contact at all with his previous uh, children. He had five, four children from one ma- first marriage when I, uh, in, in my younger days, and, and, and another, and, but had no contact whatsoever. He had nothing to say about, uh, about them. Very so cold. Very, he? very. And very clearly, you know, he eventually stood up and shook my hand. He said, well, it was nice meeting you and just <laughs> led me to the door. And that was it. You know, goodbye. So, uh, yes, I was an intrusion, obviously. The sort of meeting that left you with more questions than answers. And with answers definitely. that you went for, wasn't it? Oh, definitely. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, at that point, I'd wondered what my father's uh, state of mind was at that, yes. at that, at that uh, when he died. Because uh, you know we'd, we'd wondered you know what had happened and anyway, uh, but um, yeah. Uh, so my, but I didn't I didn't tell my brother was seeing seeing my uncle. I didn't want to upset him because mm. my brother was still in a quite a bad way really. You know always you know yes. always was really unfortunately. So yes, it was it did it left lots of questions unanswered yes. which I picked up later. Yes, and this is all now part of you exploring your family's history mm. how did this happen how did that happen mm. what was co- how did you actually go about it what did you look on websites or well uh, about this time last year i heard a, uh, a radio program on radio on radio 4 about a a, a, a cold war bunker where they monitored um, uh, russian uh, radio transmissions uh, under the moors at uh, Scarborough and it was after fi- the 50 year rule that came out mm-hmm. and I heard this and I thought oh that's when we moved to uh, North Yorkshire and your dad was a radio and operator and my dad was a radio operator in the war and yes. I thought I wonder I wonder why would you suddenly go yeah. there yes and was that linked to his change of character uh, and I found all sorts of stuff none of it conclusive but none of it which uh, yes. which swears against my conjectures so yes. it's an open ended and th- this is at the point where, without do g- giving any uh, yes. spoilers, mm. the book be- starts to turn into something of a thriller. Yes, it does. And it gets it does deeper and um, it, it makes you. It made me question all sorts of things and yes. revisit those things which I'd taken for granted, and saying, "Hang on a minute." See, so the other thing about my uncle Paul was he was the last person to see my father alive. Of course, yes. Yeah. He identified my father's body after the accident. And, mm-hmm. But I did. I never understood why that would be the case. He wasn't the closest relative at all. He right. wasn't given proxy, apparently, 
to do such a thing, and yet he did. So it makes me question all sorts and, of issues. And of course, he had the, the rank to do it, didn't he? Aha. Uh-huh. Yes. Let's go on with another poem. You've okay. got uh, new perspectives. Yeah. Okay, this is a, a poem which is another one of my sort of uh, resets where I start thinking, hmm, I wonder if I, you know, wonder if what I think is right is right, or, you know, that sort of thing. So, new perspectives. And it's written, it's a uh, uh, villanelle. Ooh, get Ooh, me. Lovely. Get me. New perspectives. Through truth's flawed prism, each man perceives his quest to learn and understand forgiveness falls as autumn leaves denouncing scoundrels liars and thieves on principles pedestal vows he'll stand through truth's flawed prism each man perceives for dashed hopes far too long he grieves his life forlorn a fallow land forgiveness falls as autumn leaves through trials and tribulation weaves an altered course to that once planned through truth's flawed prism each man perceives despite great victories he achieves feels worthless as a grain of sand forgiveness falls autumn leaves no matter in what man believes his fate is wrought by his own hand through truth's flawed prism each man perceives forgiveness falls as autumn leaves
Eva Cassidy with Autumn Leaves and another one of your choices and we are reaching the end of the show mm. and uh, we still haven't spoken about your time teaching, your time tuning pianos mm. your, and all the other projects you've been involved mm. in mm. and we've only scraped the surface of your poetry yeah. um, so there's so much more there mm. so as I say towards the end of the book mm. it gets more and more like a thriller and you get to mm. the end of your seat and you think what's what's but it leaves you with more questions than answers. Mm. So, will the quest continue, or do you think you've reached an end? Well, I've limited sources through which to confirm or discount my conjecture, but I'll keep stirring the pot, slowly, uh, which is fine by me. The book's completing itself, and at each stage, uh, and at the end, I try to reconcile my thoughts and feelings, particularly about the long-term effects of coercive control, of precluding the truth, and the malleability of memory. I've tried to instill my two daughters uh, th with the qualities of resilience and remaining hopeful in the face of life, life's problems, as I did with the pupils I taught during my 10-year teaching career. Yes. So I finished teaching about uh, five years ago, and I'm amazed I kept going that long, to be quite honest. I love teaching, but <laughs> despise the data-driven education system, as lots of people will recognise in whatever professions, particularly the caring mm. professions, they seem to have ruined most of them, and uh, they don't seem to have learned from their mistake. Anyway, I, I have a Beckstein disassembled in my garage from the, for the last three years, currently rebuilding a shower, WC and cloakroom, building an electric <laughs> bike or trike, writing poetry, books, plays, and whatever you know it'll keep going so there's lots more lots more watch this space and we will have you back on the program again sometimes thank you so in. much Kenneth. Yes. and we are going to play out with your final piece of music yeah. this what is a lovely piece of music uh, it's uh, by coop boys and simpson a trio of uh, folk singers it's called spring 1919 and listen to the lyrics the longest night of darkest dreams heralds the new tomorrow. The morning light, the bright sunbeams, can only soften sorrow. From deepest winter's harshest cold, there comes a hint of warming gold. And spring returns with tales untold The frozen earth to borrow 
Where winter snow has barely gone A snowdrop proudly glistens The robin sings his joyful song If only you would listen And fractured earth is turning green Where only brown and red was seen And agony has turned serene Where sanity went missing The farmer looks to find his home Among the fields of battle He cannot sing to mark his world Nor even call his cattle His only comfort is the sky Which stays the same as years go by But through the tears that dim his eye The misty cannons rattle Heroes return to foreign lands Have memories to smother They'll turn their hands to peaceful work Not like their lonely brother Who work with gas and shell somehow Each time he yokes his careful plough And with the sweat of his own brow He'll venture to recover in Flanders' field.